I want to talk this morning about um, training surgeons in Africa, but actually it's a much broader topic than that. I probably should have, I probably should have entitled it um, medical training, uh, doing medical training or medical education in North Africa. Um, but uh, maybe this is a, this is what I know, training surgeons. And uh, uh, if, if you're not surgical, I, I hope that this will be a springboard for you perhaps and helpful to you. And as you'll see, my objectives are not really very much related to surgical training specifically, uh, because I want to describe my transition from uh, training surgeons in Central Africa to training surgeons in, I have to say, North Africa, Um, and discuss the significant cultural, legal, and professional differences between medical education in Sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. That sounds like pretty restrictive, but I think you'll see there's huge differences also between the North American model, and so... Uh, I hope that you can glean some useful stuff from that, uh, especially since many, uh, many of us are shifting our, our focus now uh, up into the North Africa and the Middle East. And so uh, I didn't know these things when, when I went there. So I'm going to try and communicate to you all the, all the dumb things I did, all the mistakes I made, so that you don't have to, to make them and you can be more prepared. Explain what to expect when working under national administrators. Uh, it's a different paradigm than what we do when we're, we're working in sub-Saharan Africa, and, you know, I'm, I'm the director of everything. Um, and finally, describe under what circumstances sharing the gospel with Muslim patients uh, can be possible. Now, my expert area is the largest country in North Africa, and um, I think you probably know what country that is. But uh, it, it's very similar, except for maybe Mauritania, which which is sort of the the uh, impoverished relative. My transition was, uh, first of all, we spent um, 34 years in Gabon, Central Africa, and uh, God uh, worked and, and, and many, many things happened. It's a long story. Uh, that story is told in, in a number of books here. Some of you may have heard of this one, On Call. Uh, it's my testimony, of, and, it, and uh, it tells about how we started that work. This one is kind of the sequel with a little bit of my testimony in it. And uh, this one is the most recent one. It's every, everything I've learned about uh, uh, compassion ministries from a biblical perspective, integrating uh, faith with what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. So it has many stories, many illustrations, but I think that uh, it's, it's more of a, a teaching book uh, with lots of illustrations and not just a story. So... This was the team that we left. We went, my wife and I went with uh, just the two of us, and then later there were some missionary nurses that joined us, and we started with a team of five, and, and uh, many things happened, and uh, um, training programs and so forth. The hospital grew from a dispensary to a 150-bed hospital. And then God called us to leave. Uh, we started the PAX uh, surgical training program, and everything was great, and we were on the glide path for, path for retirement. It was looking good. Other people were taking over with good leadership skills and everything. And then God calls to Egypt. I mean, um, so that, that was a shock. Uh, our first reaction when uh, the, the Anglican bishop from Egypt contacted us and said, would you come and work at our 100-year-old hospital uh, up in the Delta? And we, we kind of said, no, <laughs> that's... You know, we're, we, they wanted a PACS program, and we said, uh, well, you know, your hospital qualifies. It came up and, and inspected it and so forth. And, um, but uh, God was very insistent. He was very insistent. 
And uh, to the point that he sent people to replace us. So then what do you do? You know, you can't sit around doing nothing. And so uh, we said, okay, we'll, we'll go, Lord, and uh, you, you're going to have to help us. So um, this is the North African country where we live, and uh, we're in the Delta area. Uh, the 35 million people live in the Delta of Egypt. Um, it's estimated that 33 uh, or 32 million of them are not Christians. There's 3 million uh, Christians, of course, you're born that way. It's on your ID card and, and doesn't mean you know anything about the Bible or God. So of, of that 3 million, there are perhaps 300,000. That means in that delta area of Egypt, uh, there are fewer than 1% of the population who are believers. And uh, so that's very, very different. Uh, we found uh, this hospital had been built 100 years ago, but been rebuilt in several stages. And this is what it looked like when we arrived. Now there's more construction going on quite extensive construction. Uh, it, it's in a very crowded city. Uh, we, we were in a rural area before, and uh, suddenly we find, found ourselves surrounded, the whole hospital surrounded by these apartment buildings, uh, 12, 10 stories. Um, the noise is incredible. Uh, it, it's, uh, it quiets down between about 2 a.m. and, and 6 a.m., <clears throat> and uh, the, the pollution and the dirt and the garbage, and it's, it's really not... A beautiful place, but uh, we fell in love with with the people. Very friendly. They had we, for a year. We were the only Westerners in in the city of 200,000 people. So you can imagine. I mean, people actually go look at us, you know, with their mouths open when they first saw us, and then they they've gotten used to us. So it's very crowded. You can't walk through town without brushing shoulders with people, and most of the women are wearing, um, you know, black coverings and. Uh, I had to get someone to help me translate because I just don't learn Arabic that fast. I'm working, working at it, but it's still pretty sad. Um, and, and, and so there were just many, on many, many levels that, that I had to adjust. Now, of course, Egypt is the place of the pyramids and the Sphinx, and, and those are wonderful sites, and there are many, many historical sites, and, and you can spend weeks looking at all of them, and, and tourists do that. But one of the things that struck us is that, is that most of them are about death. Most of them are tombs. And and it's about the past, and it's about the glories of the past. And, and you can go on and on and on about all these kings and everything, but they're all dead. Uh, you can go see their tombs, and they're glorious, but they're dead. Uh, so perhaps the most exciting thing was not when we saw the Sphinx um, and, and some of those other things, but when we, we went to a place called the cave church, and I'm not going to show you pictures of the cave church, but here was a church that was carved out of a garbage dump, and it's just an unbelievable story. Um, and, and, you know, thousands of Christians there now. Uh, so uh, we, we learned about that, and, and we were greatly encouraged by that. There's this history in this country of, of Christianity uh, that predates Islam. Uh, and, and they survived. For 14 centuries, they survived. Uh, but as you can imagine, there is this bunker mentality. Um, there, there isn't a great desire to, to reach out. We also discovered that uh, there are very sophisticated medical uh, centers and hospitals, private ones pr primarily, but this is a, joint, a, a government hospital that's run like a private hospital for the rich. And it's state-of-the-art. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, and... Uh, for us, it would be 
maybe like a nice community hospital, but in, in that country it's, it's uh, outstanding and it's a place where the rich go. Well, PAX, uh, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, which is a surgical training program I help, helped found 18 years ago, uh, it, it was the door opener for us. It was why we were asked to come into the country and to train surgeons. And uh, these are two of our residents. The uh, other gentleman on the uh, left, right there, is uh, a Canadian uh, oncology surgeon who came from University of Toronto. He's a professor of surgery. And he and his wife, he's Egyptian-Canadian, uh, left Egypt 42 years ago. He and his wife uh, joined, decided to join us uh, to start the PACS program there. And the hospital looks like this, that biggest building there. Uh, it's not really the biggest building, but it's the one you see there on the, le- on the right is a church. It's the Anglican Church. It's one of only two churches in a city of 200,000 people. The surrounding villages bring that up to 400,000 people. Um, this church has about attendance of maybe 35 people and uh, no pastor. So I was asked to be the lay pastor after a year. Uh, that was a surprise. And uh, the other church is a Coptic church in the city. It has about maybe 300 people max who, who um, attend. So out of, city of, uh, out of a population of 400,000 people, there are fewer than 1,000 Christians. Uh, now, the hospital has been there 100 years, and it's unusual in North Africa to have a Christian hospital. Uh, the country we're in has a total of 10 Christian hospitals. Some of them you'd have to put parentheses around that. Uh, but most of the North African countries have no Christian hospitals. Uh, there's, there's some things that are in the works, and, and uh, there might be more in the future, but uh, it, it, it really is a barren landscape when it comes to Christian medical work. Now, just so you get a picture of what it looks like at the hospital, it's not quite as primitive as, as our African setting was, and, uh, the, but it's crowded. Um, the outpatient clinic was built... 80 years ago for 100 people, and we see uh, 700 outpatients a day, six days a week. If you add the, the, the relatives who come along, there's more than 1,000 people who come through that clinic a day. So you kind of swim through it. You don't just walk. Uh, you're, you're with a lot of people, and, uh, and, and they're not real patient. I would have to say about Egyptians, I, I love Egyptians, but they are not patient people. They don't like waiting in lines. Uh, and, and the operating rooms were relatively nice. The facility was good. Um, just show you a few more pictures. Uh, we, we've had some uh, nursing students come through for clinical training. Becky's been involved. Uh, we have Bible studies now that we started with the staff. And on and, uh, and the bottom uh, right picture is our, our PACS uh, team and uh, our conference room. And then up at the top there on the, on the right, you see the plans for a new outpatient clinic, uh, which uh, we hope will get started soon. Uh, we got a grant for money, uh, $1.6 million from USAID. So th- there are a lot of things in the works. Um, and uh, the town looks like this. to just give you kind of a, a picture. As I mentioned, it's, it's uh, very busy. It's very crowded. Um, so let me, let me switch now and, and go into what, what, is like, what is it like to work in this kind of an environment? And most of these things that I'm telling you are true whether you're working in a secular hospital or a Christian facility. It's, it's much easier in a Christian facility because of the character of the people that you're working with. But there are certain things about the culture that uh, you need to know. Um, first of all, the way that the administration and administration 
is done there is in their culture there's a leader a strong leader a big man he has all the authority uh, in, by law in, in uh, our country the administrator must be a physician uh, and uh, if, there is a, if, he, if there is an administrative assistant that administrative assistant does nothing without the permission of the director of the hospital so uh, there's no formal leadership team there's just the director um, I ask them sometimes, okay, so do you have a committee that meets and we talk about, you know, because I was appointed to be the chief of surgery, so I thought, you know, it would be nice to be have a leadership team. And nope, uh, you know, it's just you're the sur- director of surgery and he's the director, director of the medicine department and so forth. Um, but there's no formal, it's a very informal leadership team. The director can call in anybody he wants and ask their advice, but, um, you know, I... I routinely will, he'll come to me and he'll say, okay, well, I just uh, gave uh, surgical privileges to this other surgeon. You did what? Yes, uh, and, and uh, here he is. Uh, his name is Dr. Haney. And, okay, hello, Dr. Haney, and what do you do? Um, those things are this idea that the director of surgery should, should you know, first be consulted uh, is, is not a given, Although after that incident, he was he was much uh, the director apologized and said I, I won't do that again. Um, there is a, a board, an oversight board, but not every hospital in Egypt has anybody to whom the director is accountable. So if you've got a bad director, it is a very bad scene. Uh, if you're going to be working in any any kind of a secular situation or even an, even a with a Christian director. It's important to assess his character before you put yourself in that position because that person is in charge of you and your work. Um, So all important decisions are made by the director. Finances, um, there are no purchases for which he, uh, that that can be made without his signature. So I'll be talking to the director about something really important and people will be coming in for, you know, they're buying, they're buying a, a hundred, things of bread from the bread man to distribute to the personnel. And so he signs the paper and they come in for, I mean, everything. He's signing for all this stuff. And and, uh, people are coming in his store. His office store remains open. So it's it's very different. It's very common. I found that this is the way it works. Uh, And it's not unique to the country that we're in, but to the region and to the culture. Projects, large and small, are managed by the director. our director is unusual in that he does ask for opinions and advice, and and he he is a, he's a good man. Uh, human resources, hiring, firing, uh, discipline, salaries, everything's decided by the director. Uh, and uh, oversight of the do- of the uh, departments of the hospital, uh, orders, inventory, pharmacy, uh, purchases of major equipment, everything goes through one man. And that's that's the culture. Now there are reasons for that, and the reason the, ma- the main reason is that to delegate is to lose control. Uh, now that that's from my perspective, um, losing control might be a good thing, but it's not always a good thing in this culture because people haven't learned how to work in a system where authority is delegated and you don't go beyond the parameters of of the authority that you're given. So um, there, we'll, we'll, I'll come back to that. Now, now the way that it works it was a big adjustment for me. It, the director's office was open, and there were a lot of changes that I need to make need to make in the Department of Surgery to get our training program going and get the operating rooms even 
marginally uh, acceptable for me. Uh, so I would come into his office, and if he was there by himself, uh, it was going to be a long conversation, I would sit down, and we would say about, we say our greetings, and someone would appear at the door, and he would look up at them and look at them like, you know, okay, yes? Oh, doctor, um, uh, we have this problem here. Uh, so-and-so wants his, his, uh, his bill reduced. He says he can't pay the money. You have to sit there. And so while that person is talking, another one comes in, and he looks over at him and says, yes? So the, f- the first person who came in, is has, it has to wait. And the second person, well, you know, I need this sign. Okay, sign. So that person goes out. And just as he gets ready for the other person to, to start talking, someone else comes in. And, and it's like, uh, oh, Dr. You know, Samir. So if you want to have a long conversation, you cannot stop that process. If you do, you, you will really be making a cultural blunder. It would be very rude. You have to just sit there and wait until everybody has gone out, and then, you know, I've, sometimes I'm really tempted to get up and just close the door, but uh, you can't, it's not your right, you're author, not authorized to do that. So there are often four or five people who are standing in line waiting to see the director while you're sitting in there for your long conversation. So if you want to have a long conversation, you want to talk about some important things, you have to plan on, on being there for about 45 minutes to an hour. And bring your request in writing, because there's so many things going across his desk. If you tell him more than two things, the next day he won't remember anything past them. So those are just some of the things that perhaps will help you. Um, it, it, is, uh, it is a hard system to work with, but if you try to force it, if you try to change it, um, Try to, you know, say, no, I'm not going to, this is not going to work for me. When I'm here, you're going to close, the, you, you're going to offend the director. You'll get your way, but, but you probably won't get the things that you're asking for uh, very easily. So the system is, is, is frustrating. The system is different. Uh, but if you can learn to work within that system, you can facilitate an enormous amount of change. And that's what we're there for. We're there to bring about good change. But uh, you, have to, you have to decide what's worth fighting for. So... Directors don't delegate because they don't trust their underlings to consult with them before making major changes and making major decisions. They don't delegate because um, they fear losing control, which sometimes uh, they have good reason. Uh, And they will be blamed for everything that goes wrong. Uh, It was really astonishing. There was a patient who had a nice, really nice uh, cell phone uh, in the medical ward, and he left his phone in the waiting room. Now, in, in, in Muslim culture, if you, uh, if you steal, uh, Sharia law means you're going to have your hand cut off. Now, they don't, they don't do that too much in our country, but it is a really big deal if you get caught. And so the phone disappeared. The whole hospital was in an uproar. This guy came back and accused the nurses of stealing his phone. And they said, well, which nurse was working closest? And it was this poor girl who, you know, had been working in the first room or something near the waiting room. And, and she was accused and they called in other nurses and the director was called in and, and he was talking for 45 minutes with this man whose phone had been stolen because he'd left it there. The, the director was to blame. The hospital had to pay this man for his phone. <laughs> Just uh, that, so you can see why. If imagine that he had delegated uh, some some great purchase that was really important and turned out badly, it would be his fault. So everything is the director's fault. So when they do de- uh, delegate, there is often 
um, a lot of fear. They do tend not to give very good oversight until there's a major problem, and that ends the delegation. Um, earning the trust and friendship of the, of the director is critical to establishing change, to bring about change like a training program, uh, any kind of ministry. Our director is a, a good and godly man, um, and so I, I really had great respect for him, but this was a surprise. What I found was that frequent uh, consultation with the director plus patient earned patience earned trust. I have to go at least once or twice a week. My wife Becky goes at least once or twice a week to sit there for an hour and, and work conversation in between all of the interruptions. So administration is a very interesting thing. There are different wrinkles on it in different countries, but the, 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 there's the strongman leadership system that you're going to find. And I would urge you to be patient and figure out how to work with it. Now, compromise is, is what is also very critical. Uh, you have to figure out what battles you're going to die for. And the other ones, just you're going to have to choose what battles you're going to lose. Maybe you'll, you'll fight those battles later and win them, but it's critical to choose. Um, and if you support the hospital director in things that you don't really care about but that he cares about, there's a payoff later. He will support you. So just, just some, some advice, things that I learned. When proposing change, timing is very important. If you, you, know, you have something really urgent you want to say to the director and you come in there and he's been shouting at somebody for, you know, like this phone thing. He was upset for two days. And that's not the time to go in and say, okay, I would like to make this new system so nobody can get privileges at the, in the operating room until they fill out a form. No, that's not the time to talk about that. You have to make wait till he's in a good mood, he's feeling calm. So you know these things if, if you can remember, uh, you know, trying to please your mother. It's the same system. Um, also, as I mentioned, present your request in writing and in person. Um, this is the director, by the way. He's uh, also the only obstetrician-gynecologist at the hospital. So half the time when you go to the hospital, he's up doing an emergency C-section. So then you go to the surgical waiting lounge and wait for him, which is what I was doing here when he came out. Let me talk a little bit about the medical environment. Um, and, and I'm comparing here uh, practice in a mission hospital in sub-Saharan uh, um, Africa or maybe in Asia where it was a hospital started by missionaries. And, and maybe the church is running it. But, but we're still very, very influential. The government looks with more or less favor upon the whole thing. And comparing it with what, what happens in North Africa. So in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, you're talking about rural mission support, a hospital of more than 100 beds. You're talking about uh, minimal competition with, with physicians outside or healthcare professionals. You're talking about a government that welcomes ex expatriate uh, specialist doctors. You're talking about uh, a country where there are not enough doctors. There's a shortage. Um, and uh, maybe you have a Christian nursing school, so you've got Christian nurses and a lot of neat things at those hospitals that, that really work together to, to, to make that, the, that place buzz. But in North Africa, you're talking about urban, uh, an urban hospital, even if it's a Christian hospital, with, no, with little or no outside support, no outside financial support. 50 to 75 beds. Space is an issue. Construction is in concrete. Uh, land is, is very expensive. Um, or, or even if it's not expensive, people don't want to give it up because it's farmland. Self, uh, you, have, you have stiff composition from local doctors. It's like being in private practice. There are many physicians. They're not very well trained. 
But the, the patients don't know that. They don't know who you, they don't know us from Adam. And how do they, you know, they kind of wonder like, okay, if you're so good, why are you here? I mean, if you were really good, why aren't you practicing in the United States? Well, what happened? Did you get fired or kicked or, or kicked out or sued or what? And so your credibility is, is not that great just because you're there. Um, the government does not welcome expatriate doctors in these countries. I uh, cannot get a permanent license. Uh, to get a get my, my medical license, I could get a, a short-term, a three-month license. It costs $700. After three months, uh, the hospital said, you know, you're, you're still a newcomer here, and, and you might make some states. We don't want the Ministry of Health coming and checking things out. So um, we'll renew it. This I paid it for the first time. We'll renew it. So they went back and they said, this time it's $1,500 for three months. The hospital paid it. After those three months, uh, there was a patient who had a complication, and I'll be talking about how complications are handled. And, the, and so the family was very angry, and the hospital director said, we better renew it again. I don't know what the hospital paid the third time. I'm hoping it wasn't $3,000. Uh, and now they decided, okay, things seem to be going well. We're not going to renew your license. Um, you're here as a teacher and as a volunteer, and we're just going to trust the Lord. So that's where I am. Uh, and, and that's okay. I mean, God's sovereign. But uh, it, it can be a little uh, unnerving if you're not prepared for it. Uh, so there's no doctor shortage, no specialist shortage. Uh, um, the country that I'm in, Egypt, graduates 10,000 doctors every year. And, and many of them can't find jobs. Um, there is uh, mostly on-the-job training for nurses through university programs, that, although there are university programs, and the same is true for specialists. If you want to become a cardiologist, what you do is you find another cardiologist, you apprentice yourself to that cardiologist, and then you study. It's up to you to figure out your own study program, and you pass an exam. You have to pass this exam after two or three years. If you pass that exam, whether or not you know what you're doing you know, with an echo or anything else, you are a cardiologist. That's also true for surgeons. You, you work with other surgeons, whatever they let you do, which is usually hold retractors for three years, and you watch them operate, and then you take the exam, you pass the exam, you get a license to kill. And that's actually what a, the term that a professor of surgery in, in our country told me. Well, the medical environment is also very different. In a, in a mission hospital in sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, we're working with, with doctors um, or students who are coming from very poor medical schools, uh, very few resources in those medical schools. Uh, uh, teachers are not that well trained many, in many cases. There, there are exceptions. For example, Kenya has pretty good schools. But most of the rest of sub-Saharan Africa has very poor medical schools. And so uh, if you have, you have one of these doctors, from the day that you, you hire them, you're, you're retraining them. You're trying to get them up to snuff and teach them the basics. Uh, there's little or no tra uh, specialty training in most of sub-Saharan African countries. Uh, minim minimal to no litigation. Complications are, are accepted by patients as, you know, of course there's going to be complications. Yes, doctor, you did everything you could, and I just wish it hadn't happened. And, but people aren't talking about suing because there are not enough doctors. Why would you sue the only surgeon in the region? Why would you sue the only cardiologist in the region? So... Litigation is not an issue in sub-Saharan Africa. 
And, and hospitals are able to import used equipment. So you can have quite a bit of equipment at your hospital that's, that's, that is working, it's cheap, it's free. Uh, you can equip a, 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 a mission hospital fairly easily these days. That is not true, though, in the North African countries. Uh, going backwards, if you start at the bottom there, the governments do not allow you to import any used equipment. Everything has to be new. And that's because, and I'll say this, uh, it's maybe not entirely in every situation, but many of the former military people or high politicians own the companies that sell medical equipment in the country. Um, the other thing is, issue is complications. In, in, in North African culture, complications are, are considered a sign of total incompetence. So, if, you know, I had a patient came in with, with a ruptured appendix. A little girl came in with a ruptured appendix, abdomen full of pus. She'd had it for a, a week. So we operated, washed her out, took out what was left of the appendix, and uh, put, gave her antibiotics. She recovered slowly. I said to the mother, she might get an abscess. The mother said, what? I said, well, you know, patients who have appendicitis, well, you didn't put a drain in. Well, no, uh, drains, you know, don't prevent abscesses. Oh, yes, they do. And guess what? She got an abscess. This family, after reoperating on her and everything, it was a big mess. They left the hospital without paying the bill. I was responsible for every for the complication that occurred. So it is a different environment. Um, frequent uh, the, 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 the litigation is extrajudicial. Uh, it doesn't go to a court. The uh, you know, some health official comes to the hospital and says, all right, with this patient, you had this complication, and what happened here? And the director, he's in the office explaining, well, you know, and he might call you in and so forth. And so the thing says, all right, the hospital's going to have to pay $1,000. That's it, you know. Whatever they decide, a hospital has to pay. So that that is a bit unnerving as well, and it's something that you should expect uh, from that culture. Complications are a problem, and there's ways to. I've learned to to minimize that. Um, it, you, you you know, in our culture, we're taught, all right, if you, you need to really inform the patient, you need to tell them everything, you need to upfront, you need to say these are all the complications you have. You cannot do that. You can't say to a patient, okay, you know, we're going to be taking out your gallbladder, that you, but you know, you realize that. Some people have complications, and you could have an infection, you could have a blood clot, you could have pneumonia, and you could die. What? Well, goodbye. I'm going to find a doctor who, who knows what he's doing. So you can't, I mean, if you want to have any, do any surgery, you can't approach it that way. You might say, you know, inshallah, in the will of God, um, this operation will go well. And when you say inshallah, that means it might go well. But everybody accepts inshallah. So there, there are ways that you will learn uh, how, how, to, uh, how to work through that. Uh, there are abundant specialists. So I'm working in an environment where I'm competing with other general surgeons, but their training was very poor, and the patients don't know the difference. So it takes a long time to establish your record, and any complication that you get you know, can deal a, a death blow for a few months. Uh, moderately, they have moderately good medical schools and, and many graduates. So, so those are some of the things. A little bit more about the surgical environments. Uh, surgeons um, uh, in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, for the most part, what I've seen, even at government hospitals, is if there's a complication, the surgeon treats it. Um, he may blame other people, but he treats it. Uh, complications are generally reported and, and maybe even in, uh, studied and talked about in a conference. 
research by academics is generally considered reliable, even though maybe the research is kind of, they didn't have a really truly double-blind study. But I mean, their data is, they're not making it up. And, and uh, patients have high esteem for physicians' management recommendations. So you have a patient who has, you know, um, gall, I had a pa- we had a patient, a woman who came in, 60 years old, anemic, um, mass in her right lower quadrant, having a problem, partially, partial bowel obstruction, she probably has colon cancer. Um, so we said, you know, she, we, we, need to, uh, uh, we need to explore her. They said, well, uh, we got a CT scan before we came. And uh, the, the radiologist didn't, didn't say anything about a cancer of the colon. So we looked at the CT scan, and there it was. He said, there's, there's cancer there. No, the radiologist didn't say there was cancer there. Um, and our mother is kind of weak right now. He said, well, she, she's losing blood. She probably needs a blood transfusion. Oh, that's a good idea. Give her a blood transfusion. She needs surgery. She probably has a cancer of the colon. At least we should do a colonoscopy. Well, you know... Um, We've talked to our brother, who's a medical student in Cairo. He thinks that we should, you know, give her vitamins and strengthen her and so forth and, and, and so forth. So can she just stay here in the hospital for a couple of weeks until she gets stronger, and then maybe we can do a colonoscopy? I said, no, no. She can't stay in the hospital. You can do this at home if you want. But you see, we're up against this every day. And, and it's, it's this attitude partially because physicians are poorly trained, I think, but it's this attitude that the family knows better than the specialist the management that should be taken. And so this, this it's really difficult not to lose it. I, I have, you just have to smile and say, oh, okay, you want to wait two weeks for a colonoscopy? All right, uh, let me know when you're ready, kind of a thing. Um, I, I just never encountered this anywhere. Of course... Um, the uh, the other thing is that when so, so when surgeons uh, in North Africa have complications, their way to manage it is they cut off the patient. No more ties. No, an- you know, they don't answer the phone anymore. The patient has to go find another doctor. And uh, that is because if they if they keep that patient and it's in the hospital, then all of, all the people in the hospital know that oh, the surgeon so and so had an infection come in the hospital, and look at that, the uh, bowel obstruction after surgery, and and uh, the, the talking everywhere, and and so there's great shame, and you know that these 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 are these are shame and blame cultures, so that's the way that they treat complications. Uh, it, it's we get a lot of these patients. They come to us, and what did your what did your doctor say? Well, he wouldn't answer the phone when I told him that I had developed a, a huge abscess uh, from my hemorrhoidectomy. Uh, he didn't want to take care of you. No, he, he wouldn't answer the phone. He said he was leaving the country. You know, so um, it's it's really you can't find out any history except from the patient about complications that that present to you because of this. The other problem is that. Um, I've talked, you know, we talked about, okay, well, what is the incidence of appendicitis in, in our country? Because it's very, very common. Nobody knows. And the reason that nobody knows is because you ask, okay, has, hasn't anybody done any research? And they go, <laughs> you got to be kidding. In Egypt? I said, yeah. I mean, you've got universities, you've got wonderful surgeons and uh, specialists in this country. Nobody's doing research? Well, he said, we have a problem. He said, we do research. The numbers are made up. I said, oh, you can't. It's not across the board. The residents say, yes, it is. So you can't believe anything from, from a culture that 
you know, they're so, they're so afraid of blame or shame, they'll even make up research data. Uh, it, it, it's, everybody admits it's a huge problem, but nobody knows how to fix it. So that was a shock for us. We, we uh, kept, uh, um, have M&M conferences at, at the hospital, the first they've ever had there in 100 years. And we talk about our complications and we keep track of our complications. And as far as I know, we have the only reliable st- statistics in the entire country. There may be some other place, but we haven't heard about it. And neither have our residents. So, you know, that's a, um, there may be some countries and some institutions where that's not true, but it is, they all admit that it is a big problem in the Arab world. Anesthesia. Uh, anesthesia is, is, is an adventure. This, this will make you feel closer to Jesus. Um, <laughs> We don't call them anesthesiologists, we call them anesthetists. And there are no nurse anesthetists because there's a physician oversupply, so they're not going to license nurses to do anesthesia. Um, They're short supply. There's not enough uh, anesthetists in the country. And uh, so as a result of that, they they rule. They often demand uh, many tests, for example, one of the first tests, and, and some of them are valid. The first test I was told, I, I, I did an open prostatectomy, and the patient bled and bled and bled. It's a 50-year-old man. And uh, so uh, afterwards, one of the doctors said, other surgeons said to me, did you get an INR on your patient? I said, no, he doesn't have any history of bleeding. He says, in Egypt, you get an INR on every patient over 30. Why? He says, because 25% of Egyptians are, have hepatitis C. Highest rate in the world, uh, at least in our in our our actually our district has the highest uh, hepatitis C rate in the world. So then there are other things though. You know, if 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 a, if a patient is over 40, you have to get an EKG, you have to get an INR, you have to give liver function tests, you have to get, uh, of course, you have to have the obligate ultrasound, even if you already have a CT scan. Um, you have to get it. I mean, and and if the patient is over 50, you have to get a an echo, a cardiac echo. The anesthesiologist wants it. We had, we had a patient, and, and if the patient is really sick, um, they just refuse to do the anesthesia. Uh, and I don't understand exactly why, because, you know, the surgeon's going to be blamed if the patient dies during the operation. But we had a patient uh, who had uh, necrotizing fasciitis, uh, Fournier's gangrene. He was, uh, he was paralyzed below the waist from a previous tumor of the spinal cord. The guy was... 65 years old, and, and he had this terrible, terrible perineal wound, and he was incontinent. And so we, we said he needs to have a colostomy so we can control this. So we presented the case to our anesthetist, and he said, uh, well, my goodness, you know, he's in terrible shape. I said, yeah, it's a, this is an emergency. We need to do a colostomy on him. Well, let's get an EKG. So we get an EKG. It looks okay. We get an injection fraction. It looks okay. It's hematocrit. It's hematocrit's 10. They said, okay, you have to transfuse. So we get blood. We transfuse him. Said, uh, uh, and then um, they uh, then they came and looked at him and they said, you know, he could die on the table. So I said, well, what are we going to do? I mean, he needs a colostomy. They said, send him to the government hospital. So the family said, okay. So they take him out of the hospital. They take him over to the government hospital where there's, you know, they can't be sued. And they do a colostomy on him. Strangest colostomy I ever saw. It was midline, actually, below the umbilicus. I said, is it left or right? Nobody knew. But anyway, it, it worked. And, and so, 
but this is the kind of things that you, you, you're up against when you're, you're working with um, anesthetists. Um, so multiple diagnostic tests, uh, they can refuse and cancel your cases. They're about five years behind um, uh, evidence-based medicine. So if, if somebody has a blood pressure of 160 over 100, surgery's canceled. I mean, I had patients that, we have patients that we, we got the blood pressure in the clinic. It was 120 over 80. Patient comes in to be operated on. Of course, they're all upset and excited. The blood pressure goes up. No. So the, the most I can get them to do is say, okay, can we give them some Inderol? We'll just put them quietly in. And then I snuck in a big dose of uh, pethidine. And uh, then they were, took their blood pressure again. And if the blood pressure came down within two hours, we could do the case. Otherwise, it's wait a week until we get the blood pressure under control. So this is something you can't get around. Uh, you just have to work with it. Uh, they determine the operating schedule uh, pretty much. And, and uh, the other things that make it uh, terrifying sometimes, uh, safety checklists are not used. Uh, we have them, I got them printed up in Arabic and English, put it on the World Health um, uh, checklist, safety checklist for surgery and you know, the anesthesia thing. No, they will not even look at that. So I asked the, the anesthetist, can you make up your own safety checklist, surgical checklist? Oh, yeah, we'd love to do that. So they made that up. And then I, then I can't get them to even look at it before the operation. So th there is this, this issue that safety uh, is, is not that important. You've you got to get the operations done, as many anesthesia cases done as possible because they're paid for each case. Um, Anesthesia for children is absolutely terrifying. Now, there are a couple of our anesthetists that are really good, but there are a couple of them that I, I just pray. I, from the moment that poor kid comes in the operating room uh, to be put to sleep, I am just praying, especially if it's an emergency. First time it happened, um, uh, I'm supposed to talk, stop here in a few minutes and give you a chance to ask questions. But the first time that it happened, uh, there's a little boy, four years old with appendicitis, and they brought him in and they... Uh, he's crying and screaming, so the anesthetist slipped an IV in. Really great, but he didn't take his clothes off. He had four layers of clothing on. You know, the operating rooms aren't heated in the winter time, so you know everything. Everyone's dressed with layers, and so they hadn't taken the, it off. But he said, "That's okay. We'll get that off later." Gave him a little whiff of I don't know what it was. It wasn't it wasn't ketamine. I think it was thiopental. And he gives it so the kid relaxes and, and calms down. And as soon as the kid became quiet, I said. Where's the pulse oximeter? And then he says, no, 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 we need to be intubate him first. So he says, he looks around and his, and his laryngoscope is not in the room. He's got two other cases going. And, and he says, laryngoscope! He starts shouting, bring me the laryngoscope! And he takes the ET tube and he's trying to put it in blindly. And the kid is not on the pulse oximeter. And he's not breathing. I tell you, I just thought he had a heart attack. Um, and uh, I was already scrubbed, unfortunately. But uh, finally, they, they got the pulse oximeter on this kid, and turned out he had about 90% oxygen sat. And he says, oh, that's good. Uh, then they decided to take it off and take his clothes off. So for the next five minutes, uh, we had no monitoring on him. He did finally get a laryngoscope and intubate the patient. But it, is, it can be just terrifying. Um, so if there are any anesthetists in the room, please feel free to come to our hospital and help us upgrade our, our Egyptian anesthetist. I think they're good guys. I think they, they're willing to learn, but they haven't seen anything else. They're just doing what they were taught and what they saw. Um, <clears throat> and then I just take a few minutes. You, you know, as, as you know, uh, we, can't, we can't just openly 
uh, talk to a patient about Christ. Uh, the, the family's not going to allow it, and there is, you know, there are sort of unspoken laws that only if the patient asks, and the patients never, they, they don't dare ask in front of the family. Um, so sharing sharing the gospel with Muslims is illegal, and converts risk death from even moderate families. Um, fortunately, it's a peaceful religion. Uh, only church-affiliated hospitals may show Christian films or literature. So if there's a Christian in a hospital, you, you really can't have any open or vert witness in the hospital. No tracks, but maybe if you go and visit the family afterwards at home, that might be possible. Uh, chaplains are not permitted, and uh, depending on the countries, uh, the, the enforcement of the Sharia law is variable. Um, Christian churches in North Africa have been persecuted for 14 centuries. In some countries, it was totally wiped out, of course. Um, so survival has been the primary mode for, for the churches, and they're not really interested that much in reaching out to Muslims. Uh, and as I'll mention to you, there's a conflict between the generations about that in, in the church. Uh, many Christians are immigrating away because they're very discouraged. And so one of the things that our presence does is to tr encourage them that, you know, they're not, they're not being wiped out. Reinforcements are here. I mean, we're not much in the way of reinforcements, but at least we're something. And uh, so that is a great encouragement to them. Um, between younger and older Christians, there, there's disagreement about uh, outreach to, to Muslims. And... Um, both sides are a little bit right. The youth want to go out and start, uh, you know, helping the poor and feeding the hungry and giving them tracts. And the older people say, don't do that. They'll come and burn our church. It's happened in the past. So uh, this, is a, this is a problem. But everybody agrees that love is the key to unlock people's hearts. That really genuine, not fake, not make-believe, not I like you because you're such a nice person. It's I love you because God made you. That makes a difference to them. We are not the answer Jesus is. Humility, gentleness, kindness, patience, self-control, and above all, love opens the doors. And uh, those we train will follow our lead in the way we share the gospel, in the way we pray for patience. And prayer really is important because prayer is a way of loaning people faith. When you say to a patient who doesn't know anything about Christ, can I pray for you? What do you mean? I mean, their idea of praying is going to the mosque and getting down and, and you know, am I going to do that? And No, no, I'm just going to pray for you. Okay, and this is through a translator. And then when we pray in the name of Jesus, we say, please bless this patient. Please help them, protect them. Put your angels around them. Help us operate. Show us what to do. Give us wisdom. Some of them, when you open your eyes, they're crying. And I think... For the first time, they understand that there's someone in the room bigger than me, bigger than the doctor. And he, maybe, he listens to the person who's praying. It's very powerful. And, uh, and it is accepted by just about, I have never had a patient, a Muslim patient, refuse. So I think that is something you can do just about anywhere. Um, and we always pray, when we pray, it's in, in Jesus' name. I don't pray in Allah's name. That was what my residents wanted to do at first, and I said, no, we're here to pray in Jesus' name. So surgical training, there is an open door. Uh, Christian training programs are, are possible, but only in, Christian, in ho Christian hospitals. There are secular training programs that some 
uh, tent makers can get involved in, but uh, it is a very difficult. It's, several of my friends who have been in, in those institutions, in those training situations, after a year they've given up, they've left. Uh, but it is possible in some places. Um, and uh, outside of Christian hospitals, uh, opportunities for witnesses are severely restricted. Uh, but if you had your own private practice or if you have other ways of relating to patients, maybe outside of the hospital, in their homes, visiting them, uh, that can give open doors. All right, so are there, do you have any questions? Uh, this is a big subject, and, and I hope I haven't overwhelmed you with, with it. Uh, God is a really good teacher, by the way. Yeah. Depends on the country. The question is, is there a place for primary care physicians who, to do some surgery? And it really depends on the country. In, in North Africa, probably not, because there's so many half-trained surgeons looking for work. So you would be competing directly with them. Uh, but if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, our, our staff is 90% Christian, although of those Christians, maybe half are, are real believers. Uh, and then we have about 10, 10% Muslim nurses, uh, many of whom actually uh, have become secret believers. And uh, then we have uh, outside, the most difficult anesthetists for us are the Muslim anesthetists who come from the outside. We don't have enough Christian ones. Uh, there are several Christian ones there. And, and they have some bad practices, but their hearts are right, and we, they'll take advice, and we can talk with them uh, and encourage them. And they're teachable. Uh, the Muslim guys, I don't know if they're teachable. Uh, well, I don't. I know they won't take advice from me. Uh, I give it anyway, uh, and I do. I have set some rules. You know, one there is a with this particularly this one Muslim fellow who at first wasn't wearing a mask in the operating room, and I just said, you know, I want you to wear a mask, please, uh, when you come in here. And he was smoking in the lounge, and I said, there's no smoking in the hospital. I want you to stop, please. And uh, so that that created some issues, but it, it was very difficult. They, they don't they don't want to take advice from a surgeon. They, they probably more likely they would take it from an anesthetist, though. Yeah. There are a large pool of Christian doctors in Egypt. But of those willing to go to invest in a five-year surgical training program when they could do it in three years and you know go out and be making money and learn on the job on people, um, it's small. Uh, we're still trying to get traction with that, so we have a few number. The number of applicants is few, but that that's always been the case when we start a new program, even in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yes. Uh, what, how, how do we feel about uh, PACS, uh, recent graduates from surgical residencies uh, coming and working with PACS? We're very enthusiastic about it, but we would recommend that you would, you would get your boards before you come. 
because it's hard to do it later. And so that usually means a year after residency, um, and during that year you could you could be raising support and things like that. So we a lot of us have done that. Uh, I would say most, uh, well maybe not most, but a lot of the younger surgeons have done that, and and it works out quite well. I, I would have to say that. Uh, as, as my f- good friend Dick Bransford said last night, many of the operations he learned after he got to Africa were not ones he'd ever seen before, and that's true for me too. But still, you get the basics. You have the basic principles, and that, that's very important. Yes? Yeah, we we have patients come into our outpatient clinic. We follow them up for, you know, we try to follow them for 30 days and don't always do that. Uh, so we'll see them several more times. Um, and and they're always very happy to see us again. Patients, some say, say in the clinic, will you pray for me again? And at that point, we can give them literature. We can even give them Bibles. We'll ask them, would, would you like a Bible? You know, have you ever read the Bible? It's a great way to approach it's not say, do you want a Bible? But have, have you have you not read the Bible? I mean, I've, I've read part of the Koran. You've not read the Bible? Oh, my goodness. And, and you're a Muslim? You know, and so it's, oh, no, I haven't. Uh, do you have one? And so it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good technique. Yeah. Yes? Specialist surgeons? Uh, yes, there are ENT surgeons uh, at our hospital. Um, but the, I mean, for for you mean people coming from the states? Is there? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, specialist surgeons are in great demand, and uh, you know we we do the best we can as general surgeons. But there are a lot of areas where we're not very good, and uh, it, it's important we don't have complications. So we just love it when specialist surgeons come, either short term or long term. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, when I, but they're all hidden uh, because they they just disappear. They don't. Uh, and when I asked the the surgeons there, so even even Christian surgeons there, I said, so you know, what's your complication rate? I mean, what's your clean wound infection rate? Oh, very very low. Um, how have you measured them? Oh, no, it's so low, it's not even worth measuring. And uh, so we kept track, and our first three months, we had an infection rate of 18%. So then we revamped everything, the, st- the way the operating rooms functioned and the sterility and the sterile technique, and we got it down to five. But I'm still embarrassed about five. So uh, I'm sure it's in the 20% range. Okay, well, if you have any other questions, um, I'm here for a few minutes before I have to make a beeline for the plenary session, but thank you very much.